Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we have something really special for you. We're reaching way back into our archives to almost the beginning of Beeson Divinity School. The year is 1992. Beeson began in 1988. So this is our really our fourth year of operation. And we invited to our campus one of the leading biblical scholars in our country, Dr. Edwin M. Yamauchi. He is professor of history emeritus now at Miami University in Ohio, where he taught for many, many years. He's an outstanding scholar of Hebrew Old Testament, the archaeology of biblical times, and he's speaking today at Beeson Divinity School uh, in this lecture on the intersection of ancient, ancient Israelite religion with Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion. So this is a step back into the history of Beeson, but also a step back into the ancient religions of the Near East, the people of God, Israel, and the Egyptian culture, which so deeply interfaced with them during their time uh, in Egypt. So let's go back to uh, the early years of Beeson and a great, great scholar, a wonderful evangelical believing Christian, Dr. Edwin M. Yamauchi. I'm very delighted to be here at, at Sanford and enjoying your beautiful campus and the beautiful weather we have today. Uh, you may wonder about the name Miami University, what's it doing in, in Oxford, Ohio, instead of in Florida. Well, it's named after the Miami Indians who lived in Indiana and Ohio, and our university was founded in 1809, a few years before your university, which is celebrating its sesquicentennial. The Miami in Florida was named by a real estate man who took the name from Ohio and uh, bought some sandy beach down there, which has, of course, become very famous. I'm Japanese, and uh, my name is Yamauchi, and I'm not related to the skater, Christy, who won the gold medal. Her name has a G in it. I was raised as a Buddhist in Hawaii, and I became a Christian through the witness of uh, a high school friend of mine. It is interesting that some people who are raised in Christian backgrounds are today trying to find themselves and the meaning of life in Eastern religions. The former governor of California, Jerry Brown, who's a presidential candidate, spent some time in India studying Zen Buddhism. And you are, of course, familiar with Shirley MacLaine, the actress who believes in reincarnation, a concept from Hinduism and Buddhism. And, of course, there is the school of thought called Transcendental Meditation, which is based on certain Hindu ideas. Well, back in the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament, there are a lot of people who are not satisfied with the traditional Roman religion. So they look to certain Eastern mystery religions. Sometimes these are called Oriental religions in the literature. But the word is somewhat misleading because today we think of the Orient as being China and Japan and Korea. Orient means the area of the, the rising sun. And in the Roman world, it meant anything east of, of Italy. So Greece and Turkey and Persia were east of Italy. What were these mystery religions that were so popular? Well, as the name implies, they were secret gatherings. And that's why we don't know very much about them. People who were initiated were pledged to secrecy, and we have very little writing about them. But we know something about some of these, and let me mention a few. 
One of the oldest that came to the Romans was the cult of the Magna Mater, the great goddess. In about 200 BC, a little before that, the famous uh, African general Hannibal from Carthage had invaded Italy, and his troops were just defeating the Romans right and left. And the Romans, in desperation, who were getting no help from their own gods, appealed to help from an Anatolian or goddess from Turkey called the Magna Mater, which means the great mother goddess. And they invited her statue, which was in the form of a meteorite stone, into Rome itself, and they set up a temple for her. Now, one of the strange aspects of this mystery religion was that the goddess Kibele, who was a magna mater, had a young lover, a man called Attis, who began to fool around with other women, and she became so jealous, she made him mad so that he castrated himself. And so the priests of the magna mater were eunuchs who had castrated themselves. Now, a second religion that came into Rome was the worship of Dionysus, who's otherwise known as Bacchus. He's the god of wine. And this is appealed especially to women. Women, you know, were very restricted, had to obey certain laws in, in their homes, couldn't go out very much in public. But in this religion, they could really let down their hair, literally speaking. They could get drunk in a religious context, okay? And what they did when they got drunk was they took a goat and they tore it limb from limb while it was alive as a sacrifice. And it's interesting that we get some words uh, into our English language from this religion. Words like, uh, such as orgy. Words like ecstasy, which means to be outside of oneself. Words like enthusiasm, which means to be involved with a god, originally the god Dionysus. Well, the Romans were suspicious of this cult, and so they passed laws against this in 186 BC. A third cult was another cult that appealed especially to women. This is the cult of Isis and her consort Serapis from Egypt. And Isis represented all the virtues and powers of all the goddesses. And her religious rites were very colorful. The priests wore white, they were shaven, they used water from the Nile River, and they had all kinds of animal gods. We read about this in a novel called the Golden Ass, written about 150 AD, where a man supposedly is turned into a donkey by black magic, and he's turned into a human by the, the grace of Isis. Now, probably the most popular cult, at least in the later Roman Empire, was the mystery religion surrounding the Persian god Mithras. Mithras is a very ancient god. We have it in very early sources. The first time the Romans came into contact with people who worshipped Mithras was when the Roman general Pompey defeated some pirates in southeast Turkey, in the area where Paul was later to be born. That was in 66 BC. But there is no real evidence of Mithraism in Rome itself, not even in Pompeii. We know specifically the date when Pompeii was destroyed by the lava from Mount Vesuvius. That was in AD 79. And although there are many different temples to foreign gods in Pompeii and Herculaneum, we don't have a single temple to Mithras in Pompeii. So we know that it must have developed as a mystery religion in Rome after about 80 AD. But once it developed, it became very popular with soldiers because it represented the power for victory. Their shrines were like underground caves 
And uh, at the end of the cave, they would have always a statue of Mithras stabbing a bull. We don't know exactly the significance of that. Recent scholars think that it might have had some astrological significance. Well, this cult spread rapidly wherever the Roman soldiers went and merchants, and we find even um, Mithraia as far away as Hadrian's Wall in northern England. Now, these cults and mystery religions competed with Christianity, and they had certain figures. And there was a time earlier in this century when certain scholars tried to explain Christianity on the basis of borrowing from these religions, or being influenced by these religions. This particular group of scholars were called the History of Religions Scholars, or History of Religion School. And they noticed some similarities, and even some of the early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, noticed that there were certain similarities between what these people did. They had communal meals, uh, they, they had these rites and so forth, and what Christians believed. We have a man called James Fraser, one of the pioneers of anthropology, who wrote a massive multi-volume work called The Golden Bough, B-O-U-G-H, in which he collected parallels from many different parts of the world, ancient and modern, and he showed that there was a, a pattern of rising and dying fertility gods that seemed to celebrate the growth of vegetation in the springtime. And of course, we know that Easter took place in the springtime because of its connection with the Passover. And so, Sir James Fraser, in one of the volumes of this book, called The Golden Bough, compared especially the figure of Tammuz, who's a Mesopotamian god, Adonis, Attis, and Osiris. And this has had some influence on popular writers of religion and Christianity. For example, a scholar from Columbia University named John Randall, a philosophy professor, wrote in a book published in 1970, quote, Christianity at the hands of Paul became a mystical system of redemption, much like the cult of Isis and other sacramental or mystery religions of the day. Another scholar, a Jewish scholar called Hugh Schoenfield, wrote in a book called Those Incredible Christians, published in 1968, quote, the revelations of Fraser in the Golden Bough has not got through to the masses. Christians remain related under the skin to, to the devotees of Adonis and Osiris, Dionysus and Mithras. Earlier in the 20th century, a group of French Catholic scholars, liberal Catholic scholars, began to try to understand Christianity as a mystery religion, and some of this spread and was picked up even by the atheist propaganda of the former Soviet Union. Uh, just a, a word of, of uh, uh, digression here. Uh, we have at our university very strong parachurch Christian ministries, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, and Navigators. And I'm involved in a church which has 250 people, 250 students coming to church every Sunday. Uh, on their own. And uh, 10 of these, or about 7 of these, recently came back from Albania, the most closed country to religion in the Western Hemisphere until very recently. And they told marvelous stories about 
the great interest in God and religion and Christianity in former communist countries. And probably those countries are the most open to the gospel right now. But at one time, those countries were atheists, and they picked up this propaganda. Now, I'm an historian, and historians need to look at the evidence carefully, and especially at the dates of the evidence. And this is what these history of religion scholars did not do. Uh, this seems to be a failing, particularly of German scholars who are influenced by philosophy. They don't pay careful attention to the dates of the sources. Let's take a closer look at some of these examples. Take the example of the Mesopotamian Tammuz, who's also called in Sumerian Dumuzi. There's an interesting myth about this god and the goddess who loves him. The goddess is called Ishtar in Akkadian and Inanna in Sumerian. And we know that she goes into the underworld. And it's an interesting process because she takes off all of her clothes. And then she's killed. Now, unfortunately, the end of the myth is broken in both versions. But despite that lack, scholars had interpreted her descent as an effort to raise from the dead her lover. In 1962, I had the privilege of studying under the world's leading authority on Sumerian. This is the oldest language in the world. And he just discovered a cuneiform tablet, which he entitled The Death of Dumuzi. This new evidence shows that the previous interpretation is all wrong. Instead of the goddess raising her lover from the dead, after she was killed, she needed a substitute, and she comes to the, to the world of the living. And she sees that her husband is not mourning her absence. He's having a merry old time. So she says to the posse of demons who, who are with her, there, seize that man. That man's going to be my substitute. So he goes down to the underworld and takes her place. Now, what about the resurrection of Adonis and Atis? Adonis has come to be the synonym of a handsome young man, the, the great uh, Greek athlete. But actually, his, word, his name is a Semitic word, Adon, like Adonai, meaning Lord. The story is told that he was killed by a boar. Attis was a young man who was in love with the goddess of Asia Minor, Kibale. In both cases, their so-called resurrection was compared by Fraser and others with the resurrection of Jesus, with the implication that the resurrection of Jesus as a concept based on these other pagan gods. Well, a Belgian scholar made a very careful study, and this was published in two articles in French, uh, which did not become widely known to, to many uh, New Testament scholars. But he showed, as a matter of fact, that all of the evidence, both in text and in art, for the resurrection of both Adonis and Attis, do not antedate, are not earlier than A.D. 150, even though we have much earlier evidence for their deaths. And that raises the distinct suspicion and possibility that instead of these pagan mystery religions influencing Christianity, it may have been very well the other way around. Now, this is the case in a specific example of a rite which a German scholar tried to connect with Christianity and redemption by blood and being born again. There was a rite connected with Attis and Kibale, which is called the Torah Bolium. And here, you had to be wealthy to afford this. If you could afford to buy a bull, 
you would dig a big hole, and then you, the initiate, would stand in that hole, and then there would be a grating put over the hole, and then a bull would be slaughtered over the hole, drenching you in its warm blood. Now, in connection with this bloody rite, there is an inscription that says, in Latin, Renatus in eterno, which means to be reborn, born again, for eternity. And a scholar called Reitzenstein said, aha, that's where the Christians got their idea of being born again. And that's where the Christians also got their idea of being saved by the blood of Jesus. Well, the only problem is the date of the sources and the date of the practice. The Torah volume does not take place until the second century AD. And the inscription which he was using doesn't date uh, any earlier than the fourth century AD. And there's another inscription that's a companion piece to that, which says, reborn for 30 years. Now stop and think. If you have two offers, reborn for 30 years and reborn for eternity, which do you think came first? Probably the offer to be reborn for 30 years. And it may very well have been that in competition with Christianity, this cult felt the need to raise its offerings to, re to being reborn for eternity. And this is the conclusion of Bruce Metzger, a very fine uh, professor from Princeton Seminary. What about uh, the resurrection of Osiris? Well, we do have good evidence for the resurrection of Osiris, even though the most complete story of the myth, Plutarch, is second century AD. If you're not familiar with the story, let me briefly uh, uh, recapitulate it for you. Osiris was a god who was married to his sister, Isis. He had a brother named Seth, and they were enemies. Seth lured him into a box, threw the box into the ocean, and drowned him. And then Osiris washed onto the shore. Isis then went looking for him, smelled his body, resuscitated him, brought him back to life again. Seth, however, killed him a second time and cut his, piece, cut his body up into a dozen pieces and scattered the pieces. Isis then went out, found all the pieces, and brought Osiris back together again. Now, once he's been brought together, he's not resurrected as Jesus was. He becomes the god of the dead. He's always portrayed as a mummy with his hands sticking out. He indeed lives, but he lives as a mummy god. Now, the Egyptians did believe in an afterlife, but there were three things you had to do in order to live after death. You had to preserve your body, and that's why you have these mummies. If you didn't have the body, you couldn't have a resurrection. You had to provide food, which is usually bread and beer, uh, either by magical means or if you were wealthy, you could actually leave enough money for those offerings. And third, you had to have a magical spell. In the Old Kingdom, only the kings could afford that. These are the pyramid texts. In the Middle Kingdom, about 2,000, then the nobles had these coffin texts. And in the later New Kingdom, you had the famous Book of the Dead, which is a long papyrus scroll that has a lot of magical in inscriptions in it. Now, only if you were wealthy enough to afford these could you expect to live after death. Uh, of course, some of the common people did hope to be identified with, with Osiris. Now, how does this differ from Christianity? It differs because in Christianity, we do not have a mythological figure, but we have an historical figure. 
And we have, for example, 1 Corinthians 15. This is a letter written by Paul that not even the most radical New Testament critic denies. It is a letter which is written in the 50s, not later than the 50s. We know that Jesus was probably crucified about the year 33. And this fact is recorded outside of the Bible. It's mentioned in Tacitus and Suetonius. We know that Christians were worshiping Jesus as God, and this is recorded by Pliny the Younger early in the second century. Uh, and there are other texts, although somewhat controversial, in Josephus that, that speak about Jesus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote at the end of the first century. But here we have an undoubted, authentic letter from Paul, who had once persecuted the Christians. And what does he say? He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, the Gospels, which were written after Paul wrote this, all test to the fact that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. And that tradition is now recognized by even German form critics as a very early primitive tradition. If you have the empty tomb, you have to explain how the tomb was empty. Well, the Christian answer is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, there have been some attempts to try to empty the tomb, but they're all rather absurd. Uh, ideas to the effect that maybe the women mistook the tomb, or maybe Jesus was still not dead when, when he was buried. And these are all rather nonsense, non, nonsensical and have not convinced many people. But it was more than the empty tomb which convinced the disciples. It was the appearance of the risen Christ on at least 10 occasions to a variety of people in differing circumstances, which rules out the phenomenon of hallucinations. People actually heard him and touched him and saw his wounds. And he appeared to Christ. And what was the, uh, he appeared, uh, the risen Christ appeared to Paul. And what was the effect of that? This is the most convincing evidence of all of the resurrection. It had a life-transforming effect. It was not a vague hope of Im immortality, like the mystery religions. It was not restricted to a certain group of people like women or soldiers. It did not require money so that you had to be wealthy in order to, to purchase something. It was a free revelation of God's grace to everyone who would believe. And it transformed people like James, the brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus in his lifetime. Like Peter, who was discouraged and had gone back to fishing. Like Paul, who had been Saul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the Christians. And of course, the greatest uh, continuing proof is the proof of the resurrection for those who will accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. It can transform your life. I trust that it has. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is something which is not just simply an academic question, which is an interesting question. 
It is the most important thing in the world. If indeed Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, then you have an obligation to make him the Lord of your life, to give your life to him because he died for you and rose again from the dead. Shall we bow in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the Easter faith, which is grounded in history, in a cloud of witnesses, in one which the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts is true. And we pray that each one here may experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, the living Savior, daily uh, in his or her life. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.